Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm your host today for New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm here with Professor Joanne Paul. She's Senior Lecturer in Early Modern History at the University of Sussex. She recently published, earlier this year, Council and Command in Early Modern English Thought, again published earlier this year by Cambridge University Press. Welcome to the, to the show, Joanne. Thank you for having me. So before we dive into the prompts, let's uh, discuss this striking cover. Can you give us a little input on your cover selection? Yeah, of course. Um, we looked at a couple of different images because there are a lot of uh, representations of the relationship between a monarch and uh, his or her counselors in the period. Uh, I think we decided on this one, though, um, from Hall's Chronicle, um, because there's a sense in which Henry VIII is, is surrounded by his counselors, um, but almost uh, there's a sense in which their presence is, is equally as important or even a little overwhelming to his own. Um, so I liked this image very much for that sense of, of balance as well as conflict between counsel and command. So this book was based on your dissertation supervised by intellectual historian Quentin Skinner, which in turn focused on a tension between counsel and command between circa 1500 and the mid to late 17th century. Your book is, uh, is a part, by the way, of the Ideas and Context series. So by way of introduction, please compare and contrast how Erasmus, Thomas More, and Castiglione each advanced the virtues virtu, of erudition for early 16th century courtier and how each approached public and private counsel. Certainly, that discussion of, of Erasmus More and Castiglione makes up really the first chapter of the book, um, thinking about the early humanist approach to political counsel, which is tied, as you've said, to arguments about rhetoric and erudition. Erasmus More and Castiglione all saw the power of rhetoric, uh, rhetoric the power to persuade, and as Professor Skinner himself often emphasizes, to move people to or from a position by harnessing the emotions, the power of rhetoric in moving the prince, uh, here by prince we mean um, any ruler, um, even in a republican context, uh, moving the prince to virtue. Each of them articulated in one form or another agreement with uh, this metaphor of the fountain, which I talk about in the book drawn from Plutarch, the idea that from the prince flows all the good to the commonwealth or the evil to the commonwealth. It all depends on who has the power of putting either good things or, or poison into that fountain. So the inculcation of virtue can and almost certainly will take place by means of rhetoric for these humanists, uh, either by the tutor in Erasmus's case, the counselor in the case of Moore, or the courtier for Castiglione. This, of course, gives great power to that figure if they have the power to move the prince uh, from various positions. And uh, rhetoric um, for Erasmus Moore and Castiglione, uh, they acknowledge this power. They acknowledge the power that the counselor will have over the prince and the means by which it can be employed. Um, and so Erasmus, for instance, notes um, what he calls an inoffensive form of flattery, or what I call in him an inoffensive form of flattery, which is used, um, for instance, he says, in leading children to the study of letters. And he applies it himself. We have an example of him using it 
in his panegyric to Archduke Philip of Austria. He also talks about humor, that humor can be helpful in this, in this leading of the prince. Uh, and he notes, for instance, that Plato suggests using a drinking bout as some defects can be routed under the cheerful, in, cheerful influence of wine, uh, which are not corrected by stern rebuke. Moore likewise speaks of an indirect approach, and I've written on this elsewhere too in a, a forthcoming book with, um, uh, on political advice. And uh, he talks about an indirect approach, which is a sort of ambiguity of expression that um, really borders on, on um, misleading and outright falsehood. It's Castiglione, I think, who perhaps goes the furthest. He describes um, what he calls a veil of pleasure, which can be used to draw the prince to virtue, almost uh, at least against their knowledge, if not against their will. And in order to dispel the veil of ignorance, um, the phrase I was surprised to see in Castiglione, because we tend to associate it, of course, with the 20th century philosophy of John Rawls, this veil of ignorance which clouds the prince's judgment. And Castiglione gives great power to his courtier counselor to lead and even control the prince through rhetoric. Notably, and, and thank you for drawing attention to this in your question, they're all concerned that this rhetoric ought to be employed privately and in the right sort of formal private context. Erasmus and Moore become even more concerned about this issue after about 1517 and the rise of Lutheranism, to which, of course, um, especially Moore is opposed. And Moore, especially of these three, I think is clearest and most adamant about the private nature, the necessarily private nature of um, what he calls admonishing rulers. To admonish them publicly would be, he would suggest, to incite disorder and disobedience, and it would mislead a misunderstanding public. He famously writes in 1532 that if he thought his own books would cause this sort of harm, he would burn them himself. And so Moore very clearly thinks that this sort of counsel, this admonishment, this leading of a prince to virtue ought to happen privately. So in these contexts, why was the Ciceronian and Senecan debates over bad habits and opinions derived from ignorance so crucial in understanding their ideas? And how did each conceive of Kairos vis-a-vis silence and the opportune moment for counsel? What I call in the book the Senecan debate was actually a bit of a discovery for me when I was working on this book. We've known for some time, and we must thank Professor Skinner again here, amongst others, that the humanists of this period were drawing on Cicero in order to justify their arguments for an active life, an active life that could be found and fulfilled in the role of the counselor, leading his prince to virtue through rhetoric, as I've just said. Um, and Professor Skinner in particular has drawn attention to the way in which the first book of um, Moore's Utopia um, sets up this Ciceronian active life in opposition to Plato, Plato and the more contemplative life. But what I uncovered was a, a debt to another classical author, uh, Seneca, uh, a Stoic, whose letters Erasmus translated while he was visiting Moore in England in 1513. In two of Seneca's letters, um, 94 and 95, if you want to go look them up, Seneca sets out two different cases for the relationship between education and advice. In one, he suggests that though advice cannot root out 
false opinions, it can still stir virtue within us. And he talks about almost uh, stirring a spark into a flame. In the other letter, he suggests that something stronger than advice is needed. And this language of rooting out and stirring pervades the texts of Erasmus More and Castiglione in a way that I think hasn't been fully recognized. And in particular, we can see Erasmus emphasizing the second of these letters, the idea that um, what's important is not letting bad ideas take hold because advice maybe can't help with those. Whereas More seems to suggest that even if this bad advice becomes embedded, or sorry, this bad education, these bad opinions become embedded, advice can still be useful. So in addition to the debate between Plato and Cicero in the opening of Utopia, there's also a debate between the two positions apparent in Seneca's letters um, and two approaches to the importance of counsel. Of course, as you've um, said, there's also an issue of timing in all of this. So even if we accept that advice is still useful, even though false opinions have taken root, all of these authors acknowledge that it will not be useful if given in the wrong time. And this goes back to that context for counsel um, discussion that I mentioned earlier. Erasmus More and Castiglione all want to say that counselors should stay silent except when there is an opportune moment for speaking, what the Greeks called Kairos. As Erasmus wrote about Luther, if rulers are inappropriately, or sorry, inopportunely insulted or admonished, they don't improve, but rather become embittered and sometimes stir dangerous storms. So in other words, if one gives the sort of powerful advice we were just speaking about, when it's not dressed up rhetorically and it's just frank speech, it can be worse than useless and have the opposite effect if it's given in the wrong time. And so for this reason, all three of them suggest silence until this opportune moment arises. And we see a nice example of this um, in Moore's History of King Richard III, where um, Moore's sort of hero figure of Morton, um, Cardinal Morton, bides his time before seizing the moment to advise through this indirect approach. So it's a combination of uh, the the rhetorical phrasing and sort of dressing up the advice uh, in rhetoric and and this veil of pleasure, as Castiglione calls it, as well as giving it at the exact right time and and waiting to give it um, at this opportune moment or in the moment that the Greeks called kairos. Please explain in context the early 16th century writings of Thomas Starkey and Thomas Eliot especially in regards to their critique of silence until Kairos that you alluded to. Uh, Starkey's arguments for time and place counsel and Eliot's arguments for a council of understanding, particularly timely acts of Parisia to counter imminent dangers to the public real. So in contrast to these early humanists, all of whom have their roots in in more continental affairs, uh, even more who, of course, is English, he's often writing for a continental humanist audience. Starkey and Eliot are speaking uh, very specifically and explicitly to English contexts and English events. And they have a very different approach and and take to the issue of Kairos and advice giving. Uh, Their work also has, I think, been understudied in comparison um, to Rasmus Moore and Castiglione. And I think there's a lot there um, that has been 
uh, at least by some overlooked, put succinctly, whereas um, these other writers advocated waiting until the opportunity to speak arose, so staying silent until that moment, Starkey, and especially Eliot, come to the position that suggests seeking out and utilizing every possible opportunity before it slips past. So both groups of humanists, um, more Erasmus than Castiglione and Starkey and Eliot, want to seize the chirotic moment. Um, but it's just in a, in a shift in terms of emphasis, either waiting for it to appear and staying silent or seeking it out and, and actively using every opportune moment that one sees. And they also, and again, especially Eliot, come to a position that acknowledges the need for public counsel in extreme circumstances. So again, in contrast um, to those previous thinkers, now we, we, there's a, a, a um, suggestion, an awareness that sometimes counsel in public is necessary in certain circumstances. And these, um, these, these, uh, these views, um, looking and searching out for the opportune moment and the awareness of uh, the need for public counsel in certain circumstances are related. Um, because the opportune moment is not just an opportunity. Kairos is, is demanding. It, it demands that one must seize that opportunity. And so it sometimes requires acting in ways that one normally wouldn't. For instance, speaking out of turn or or speaking publicly, or, or admonishing the ruler in public, these things that, as Moore said, one really shouldn't do. I think Eliot especially wants to suggest that sometimes one has to do that. So let's begin uh, with, with Starkey's text, um, which was written between 1529 and 1532. Um, it contains a dialogue much like that of Utopia, um, but instead of debating, as I said, you know, that setup of the debate between um, a, a character like Plato and a character like Cicero, instead of debating whether a person should give his knowledge to the good of the commonweal by becoming a counselor, that's quickly agreed in Starkey's text. The two interlocutors discuss whether the time and place is right to give such advice. And they return to this debate at the end of the text as well. So it sort of frames the entire dialogue. And, and the, the knowledgeable figure, the one that um, is, is, um, should, perhaps the argument is made, give his advice um, to the benefit of the, the Commonwealth, um, he, he wishes to wait until he's called to counsel, um, until the king asks him for his advice. But the other member of the dialogue suggests that this is to let occasion slip and will lead to the destruction of all. And so here I think um, Starkey is articulating a critique of the position that I outlined um, from, from Erasmus Moore and Castiglione, uh, waiting for the opportunity of private counsel solicited by the prince, I think Starkey's text suggests, is in fact to miss the occasion by waiting for some ideal version of it. And Eliot comes to a similar position through the course of Henry VIII's break with Rome where uh, Eliot, along with a number of other counselors, including, of course, Thomas More himself, become sidelined and even persecuted. Um, More is, of course, executed. And the clearest articulation of Eliot's views on this issue of right timing and counsel comes in his Pasquil the Plain 
1533. In this dialogue, the Frank-speaking Pasquil defends his railing against uh, the the actions of the prince to two other councillors, two councillors who are called to council. Um, Pasquil, like Eliot, has been sidelined. Uh, these councillors in the dialogue are Natho the Flatterer and Harpocrates the Silent. And Pasquil's position um, is that the times have changed. The prince is no longer calling on good councillors, and so Pasquil is forced to rail against him in public, rather than waiting on the hope that he'll be called on to give his advice in private. That just isn't going to happen. And so Pasquil, in some sense, has been forced into an alternative uh, position, an alternative strategy. And so there's a sense in which the times demand it. And there's a really fascinating passage uh, within Pasquil the Plain in the discussion between Pasquil and Harpocrates about the word imminent in this context. Pasquil and Harpocrates agree that one must speak out when the danger is imminent, um, but they disagree about what imminent really means. Uh, and Eliot notes in the text uh, that imminent is, is a new word in the English language taken out of Latin. So it makes sense that there's no agreement about what it might mean. But the two figures uh, come to uh, an agreement, uh, sort of led by Pasquale, um, that danger is imminent when it is likely to happen, but before it has actually begun to take place. Speaking before the, the, the danger is likely to happen, they agree endangers the counselor. He's, he's speaking when, when there's, there's no reason to admonish the ruler. But speaking after that the danger is taking place, of course, endangers the counseled. They're, they're, they, be, they remain in danger. No one sort of intervenes to save them. And so this moment, this imminent moment that they, they decide on, is the right moment for frank speech. And, and they agree that it must be hit exactly. Waiting silently, as Erasmus Moore and Castiglione would have it, does no one any good. This imminent moment, this opportune moment, must be hit and must be seized in order to actually make an intervention. According to Eliot, how did Acts of Parisia manifest Puglia prudence? And why was the Council of Understanding, particularly in wisdom and the virtu of free speech, so delivering truth to power, crucial for the liberty of a monarch? Eliot uh, writes extensively on, on council. Um, he, he writes least five different texts on it in a fairly short period of time. And most of what he has to say about council is, is fairly traditional. He draws on both classical and medieval precedents, um, both of which emphasize the importance of prudence to counsel. Um, and throughout this period, prudence and counsel become linked. Uh, prudence being the virtue of deliberation between vice and virtue, using knowledge of past, present, and the likely future to determine virtuous action. It's the sense in which uh, one puts um, virtue into action, um, which is why it's often translated um, in uh, in the Greek texts um, where it's phronesis, it's usually uh, translated either as, as prudence as it was in the 16th century or uh, more often practical wisdom, this idea of sort of actioning wisdom. Um, and so it becomes uh, linked to counsel. 
And like, um, like for Aristotle and for Thomas Aquinas, for Eliot, prudence is the most important of the cardinal virtues as it translates virtue into action. Prudence is required both to give and to recognize good counsel. And so um, parousia, frank or free speech, uh, could thus be a sort of truest manifestation of prudence. Uh, though, as we've seen, it also has to be given in the right moment. And so um, counsel is often associated, as it is in Eliot, with both prudence and with kairos. When um, it, it is um, uh, actioned in the right moment, parousia, as I've um, uh, written elsewhere uh, at a volume on freedom of speech, um, Parisia becomes not just free speech, as we know it today, um, but something that I've called freeing speech, as it has the potential to free the speaker, the listener, and the entire Commonwealth. Um, so there's this great potential here that Eliot wants to describe um, to, to free sort of everyone through um, frank or freeing speech. And this is because of uh, the, the rule, the leadership, the guidance of understanding. If understanding, Eliot wants to say, is in control, one is not ruled by passions and vices and thus is freer. So there's this um, potential to be freed from the, the vices and, and passions, emotions that, that could rule you if you allow understanding through counsel to rule you. This is all a bit um, <laughs> philosophical and abstract, um, but fortunately, Eliot gives us an example to think all of this through in his Of the Knowledge Which Maketh a Wise Man, which was written about the same time as Pasquil. In it, Eliot tells the story of Plato, the philosopher, and the tyrant Dionysius. Now, Plato tries to counsel Dionysius to good kingship good kingship where he is ruled by understanding. This doesn't go well, however, and Dionysius sells Plato into slavery. In the dialogue written by Eliot, Plato um, is forced to defend his, his frank speech um, to someone who's asking, well, if it all went very badly, why did you do it? Would you do it again, etc.? And he defends his, his choice to offer this, this truthful speech to Dionysius um, and, and, and defends that he gave it at the opportune time. He suggests, um, Eliot through Plato, that had Dionysius listened, he would have been freed from the tyranny of vice and passion which ruled him. And as a result, his subjects too would have been freed from his tyrannical rule. As it was, however, even with Dionysius not listening his, to Plato's advice and selling him into slavery, despite his slavery, Plato was made free by his frank speech. Plato was ruled by understanding and not by the fear of what Dionysius would do to him. So his free speech was evidence of his freedom, and the slavery that resulted was only evidence of Dionysius's unfreedom, not his own. So this potential within Parisia to not only be free speech, but even in a context of unfreedom to be freeing, I think is, is a really interesting insight that we get from Eliot. Please provide a brief exegesis of Machiavelli's eight element engagement with counsel in his 1532, The Prince. 
you don't have to do all eight elements. Uh, you can address uh, temporalities such as uh, Fortuna and Occasion in demanding action for Caros, as well as ideas on prudence, occasional deception, paradestole, and self-interested counselors in a util monarchy, <laughs> but not necessarily in a res publica. Right. So um, having had this more traditional humanist approach to counsel, um, where the prince is led to virtue through rhetoric, um, never mind debates about timing and so on, Machiavelli comes along um, and throws the proverbial wrench into the works, um, overturning the entire model. And in chapter three of, of the book, I tried to summarize the key elements of this shift in eight points as you say. And, and I think the easiest thing is for me to just go through them, um, because when I finally figured out what exactly were the changes, um, I think it, it, it brings together a lot of what's going on in the Machiavellian tradition in what I'm hoping is, is a helpful and clear way. Um, the first seven of these are present in Machiavelli's own work, largely, as you say, in the print, um, though there are echoes of it in the discourses as well. Um, the final that I'll say is is added in subsequent Machiavellian texts, so texts that um, ad- adopt and adapt Machiavelli, um, though it's not actually present in, in his own works. So first, uh, Machiavelli, as I said, uh, reverses uh, the model of counsel that we've seen. So instead of a counselor leading or even ruling his prince, guiding his prince, for Machiavelli, the prince must rule his counselors. So we get a, a full sort of inversion of the model here. And this is related to and based upon the second point that for Machiavelli, a counselor's motives cannot be trusted. They're almost certainly going to be self-interested rather than based in the interests of the prince or the republic. And for this reason, and third, the prince ought not to rely on a single counselor but get his advice from a variety of counselors. Machiavelli says that a single counselor, if he's clever, will likely usurp the prince's power. Um, So what you have in Machiavelli is a completely inverted or reversed model of counsel where the prince requires prudence in order to rule over and control his counselors rather than the counselors supplying the prince with prudence. And none of these counselors are um, meant to have the sort of close personal relationship with the prince that the humanists had envisioned. In terms of the counselors themselves, and, and this is the fourth point, Machia- Machiavelli maintains and really demonstrates that a counselor should give advice on what the prince can do, not on what he ought to do. So the content of counsel shifts from the sort of moralistic advice based on prudential virtue that we saw with the previous group of humanists that we looked at to a more practical working out of, of what the available options are and, in a sense, what the prince can, can get away with. And fifth, this means that sometimes a counselor ought to counsel vice, deception, dissimulation, paradiastole, um, which is uh, dressing up a vice as an associated virtue when necessary. And this idea of when necessary brings us back, of course, to Kairos, um, which is very present in Machiavelli's text. Um, he talks a lot about Acasione. Um, and so Kairos comes back in here as an opportune moment, which demands certain action 
and allows for that action, even if it's immoral. Kairos, I often talk about as a sort of break in chronos or chronological time. It's, it's, it's a separate sort of entity, almost a bubble within it, where the regular rules don't quite apply because something, something has to happen in that moment. There's a demand about it. And so um, this brings us to the sixth element that we see in Machiavelli, that a prince's actions and thus the council that guides that action must vary with time and circumstance. And Machiavelli has some very choice words for people who don't vary with time and circumstance, who don't essentially pay attention to Kairos. And running through all of this and, and seventh, there is a very clear redefinition of what prudence is. It's no longer associated with virtuous action, um, with uh, honorableness, or in the Latin, honestum. Prudence is reimagined as relating to utile, or a sort of practical advantage. And this is now the aim and source of good advice, good no longer meaning morally good, but more meaning beneficial, uh, almost self-serving. Uh, political council. And so the final point, the eighth point, um, is, is not, as I said, in Machiavelli's own works, though I'm not sure he would have objected to it. It's consistent with a lot of what we've already said and brings us back really to this idea of the inverted model of council. That the sort of powerful rhetoric that uh, Erasmus, Moore, Castiglione, and even Eliot and Starkey all advocated it has no place in counsel to princes. As it's a way that counselors control and, and as we said, sort of move um, princes to certain action, it, it ought to be seen as suspect, the Machiavellians hold. So what we really see here, um, more pronounced, I think, than in the previous uh, writers that we looked at, is, is a tension between counsel and command, counsel and rulership. The humanists we began with want to see counsel, in some sense, commanding through the prince. Machiavelli and those who follow him argue very strongly against this, and in some sense advocate for a, a clearer separation between the two, um, and, and the idea that command clearly commands, and counsel is in some way subjugated to it. Can you trace the English reception of ideas on princely prudence, kairos, timing, and non-persuasive rhetoric in texts that, that relied excuse me, on the prince and other writings, including Il Discorsi, especially those translated by Thomas Blundville and John Thorius. So Machiavelli's Prince was written in 1513, but not printed until after his death 20 years later. It was, however, circulated in manuscript, and very interestingly, some of the earliest commentaries on it are actually in the English tradition. So by the 1560s, there were very clearly Machiavellian texts uh, on the counselor, both in England and abroad. Um, and those, um, especially in the Spanish tradition, were also being translated into English, often with very significant changes. So we have to be careful, I think, in thinking about these too much as translations, as they were often adaptations. Um, Lundeville talks about his, for instance, as an abridgment. Um, so 
it's really helpful to look at the original and the quote unquote translation to think about some of the changes that are made. So Blundeville um, translated a Spanish text on the counselor, dedicating it to Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, importantly, not dedicating it to uh, the Queen Elizabeth at the time. And he also removed a lot of the explicitly Machiavellian content. The themes, the Machiavellian themes remain, however. Uh, so, for instance, virtue is de-emphasized. It's noted that counsel ought to come from a variety of sources, as Machiavelli said, and ma- uh, counselors are treated as objects of suspicion, as they were in Machiavelli. Importantly, as well, Blundeville treats or um, repeats the definition of prudence as relating to more practical matters, um, not explicitly linked to virtue. Similarly, John Thoris's translation of uh, another a very Machiavellian text on the counselor, um, which is written uh, very much in the same tradition, also emphasizes these Machiavellian themes. And it's in this text um, that we see the outright rejection of rhetoric, the suggestion that to use rhetoric is more forceful than commanding the prince. Um, to uh, lead the prince through rhetoric is, is to take more power from them than even to command them. And so it's, it's, it's usurping uh, the power of command from the prince to use rhetoric to lead or to move them. And it's also in this text that we see very explicitly articulated the emphasis on Kairos in council. And uh, there's a very clear uh, recalling of, of the image, the classic image of, of Kairos. And the suggestion that it's the opportune moment, not any moral considerations, which determine the outcome of an action. So um, we're moving very clearly from a uh, uh, council which is uh, toward and guided by and founded on, on moral uh, foundations and, and virtue to one that is considered, uh, takes a consideration of the circumstances and the opportune moment and the demands of that moment instead. And so I think both of these texts, um, technically translations, but I think much more than that, highlight the real shift in the discourse of council from the early to the mid-16th century. Please briefly address anti-Machiavellian ideas on counselor mitigation of Fortuna via knowledge of contingent opportunities, as well as how concessions by a number of scholars, Lipsius, Montaigne, Cornwallis, even Francis Bacon, paradoxically sustain Machiavellian notions of flexible moral prudence in diverse public circumstances. Yeah, it's important, I think, not to um, assume with any uh, historical shift that the previous views disappeared. Um, they, they're still very much present as part of the discourse. And there was, as we might very well expect, fierce opposition to Machiavellianism in the 16th century. And what I found interesting, that was even in these texts um, that are, are meant to be countering Machiavellianism, there's a fundamental acceptance of some of Machiavelli's key ideas. And that's, I think, what we're speaking about when we talk of a shift something foundational has moved along in the framing of the debate, even though the debate still exists. So there isn't uh, necessarily 
um, an explicit acceptance of Machiavelli's ideas, but but somehow um, even those who are opposing Machiavelli have have um, almost more subliminally um, accepted some of the foundations of of his thought. So when I'm looking at writers I'm calling anti-Machiavellians, writing directly to counter Machiavellian ideas, um, primarily uh, the the issue of utile over Ernesto. What uh, I think really surprised me when I was reading them was how willing they were to accept some foundational Machiavellian precepts, such as the necessity of deception, especially in the light and the demands of kairos, in other words, in exceptional circumstances. So even authors uh, explicitly uh, like Cogne um, writing against uh, deception and, and, and the use of lying in, in politics, note, well, there are still some circumstances where it might be necessary. Um, and these exceptional circumstances appear to apply specifically to rulers and what we might, though, anachronistically call the political sphere. So it's then that um, political counsel shifts accordingly for these thinkers, becoming less about virtue and more about adapting to these circumstances, regardless of what that adaptation might entail in terms of action. And a lot of this, as you said, is related to um, the desire to deal with the ups and downs, the, the, the turning of the wheel of fortuna. And so by seizing the, the moment, seizing the opportune moment, seizing Kairos, one can, in some sense, um, almost fight back or um, uh, overturn the, uh, the rule of, of Fortuna in man's life. And that's, that's a lot of what uh, Machiavelli sees in uh, Acacione and Kairos as well. And so you see it um, in these uh, writers after Machiavelli, whether they be Machiavellians or anti-Machiavellians. And I think um, Justice Lipsius is especially interesting in this context. He seems to weave together both Machiavellian and anti-Machiavellian in his work, ultimately suggesting, I think, that one needs a little bit of both, which is to suggest fundamentally um, that that sort of Machiavellian moral flexibility is indeed correct, that we need to be able to shift between um, uh, sort of traditional moral stances and, and, and have that flexibility to be immoral when the times call for it. Montaigne, uh, the great essayist, uh, takes this further, suggesting essentially that uh, this Machiavellian flexibility, which uh, is, is suited particularly to the, again, the political sphere, um, to politics and to political actors, everyone else is required to be virtuous in the very traditional sense, but rulers must break with that at times. Um, so there's a sense in which uh, the ruler um, not necessarily becomes uh, above these moral considerations, um, but there's a sense in which uh, they are uh, at times almost forced to, to break with them. And the English essayists uh, who draw on Montaigne take this even further. Uh, emphasizing how this means that the counselors who are advising rulers must therefore have a clear understanding of the times. So again, this relationship between counsel and Kairos becomes um, stronger. And Cornwallis uh, suggests a division 
uh, between what might be called private advice, which pertains to personal relationships and the like, and political counsel, um, which pertains to the political. Um, one, again, is still based on rules of morality, the other less so. And Francis Bacon adopts a, a lot of what we've been talking about, these Machiavellian themes, also emphasizing the Machiavellian reversal of the relationship between counsel and command that we've been talking about. Um, and here he uses the myth of Jupiter and Matisse. Uh, he figures Jupiter as the monarch, Matisse as the council, and Athena Pallas as um, the wise advice, which um, bursts out of Matisse's head and Jupiter immediately claims as his own. So this idea that the monarch goes to his counselors, his council, um, and, and poses a question or what have you, um, the council thinks about it, um, gives their advice, and then Jupiter takes that as, as his own. Um, that wisdom that emerges from them is, is, is his and is presented as his. So, so the council is, is, is firmly subjugated in a way that it hadn't been for those early humanists that we talked about. So you discussed the uh, Henrician Regency Council and the Parliamentary Privy Council. In those contexts, what were late Tudor conceptions of Machiavellianism? And how did paranoia about the weakness or perceived weakness of Queen Elizabeth's gender result in fears of self-interested Machiavell counselors pursuing command, which in turn could ostensibly plunge monarchy into tyranny? I thought this was a really interesting argument. Thank you. Yeah, I I enjoyed um, talking about uh, the, um, the 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 sort of shift from the political context in the early 16th century into the context of the late 16th century, um, because it it's really pertinent to all of this uh, discussion. Um, of course, in the first half of the 16th century, up to 1547, um, we have adult male monarchs. That changes. And so for over five decades, um, the, the latter half of the 16th century and into the first few years of the 17th century, um, one doesn't. Um, England is, is ruled first um, by a minor, Edward VI, and then by two women, Mary I and, and Elizabeth I. And um, in the 16th century mindset, uh, none of these, these figures, children or women, were thought to have the necessary prudence to rule. And so, um, as we've seen, prudence essential to counsel. Well, there are sort of two options then: either um, the, uh, the 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 minor or the the women uh, have their prudence supplemented in some way um, by their counselors. But and here comes the Machiavellianism again um, to to mess with everything. Um, if if that happens, um, well, the the other option might be that they are ruled. Um, by a counselor in a very negative way, um, that uh, the, the, the throne is effectively or even literally usurped by that um, counselor. So um, this sort of uh, what, uh, what one historian has called species of interregnum, this, this lack of, of an adult male on the throne of England, um, led to this idea that the throne was in some ways sort of weakened and, and needed um, propping up or, or defending. And I think this political context really highlights the tension that exists in, in the discourse um, between the idea of this more 
um, almost benevolence, um, uh, um, state interested, um, humanist, virtuous counselor who, who guides and protects and infuses the Commonwealth with, with virtue. And this uh, more Machiavellian uh, counselor um, who rules in, in his own interest and um, effectively takes power for himself. And so um, there's real concern about the tyranny of a counselor figure, um, such as that of Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester in the reign of Elizabeth I, or um, his father, uh, John Dudley, in the reign of Edward VI. It's worth, I think, recalling that tyranny um, essentially means, um, and certainly the 16th century meant ruling in one's own self-interest. So self-interested counselors ruling through and over a weak monarch, um, as someone like Elizabeth was seen to be, um, would constitute tyranny. And there were real concerns that such Machiavels lacked only the opportunity to seize the throne itself. And there's a lot of language of, of opportunity, um, which, as we know, is associated with Kairos in describing the actions and the motivations of these Machiavellian counselors like Robert Dudley. And the opportunity, of course, to take the throne themse- themselves was um, only uh, the, the death of Elizabeth, uh, which, as, as one um, critic put it, um, it would be easy enough for someone like Robert Dudley to pull off and in the end is going to happen (laughs) inevitably anyway. Um, And this is too where uh, the the discourse of counsel that we've been talking about um, collides not only with a a very different political context, um, but with the religious tensions in England as well. Um, And Peter Lake has um, shown this um, in in a recent book uh, Protestants uh, tended to associate Machiavellianism with Catholicism, um, and especially with the Medici. Uh, Catholics, on the other hand, um, saw uh, Protestant counselors like Dudley as a threat to themselves and to the um, good of England, and often painted Dudley as a diligent student of, of Machiavelli. So both sides really are... Um, uh, hurling accusations of, of Machiavellianism at each other. And it's the figure of the counselor, um, this humanist figure of the counselor, who really, um, I think, uh, in a sense, get, gets caught in the crossfire of this and, and, and suffers. There, 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 there is no trust, there is no faith, really, in this humanist counselor anymore, um, really at a time when um, they, they would be needed the most because of the sense of, of uh, the weakened monarchy. How did ways of knowing history, as well as knowing the Protestant multitude council via parliamentary free speech, replace counselors and ideas for, quote unquote, bridling a queen? And what about Hollinshed's chronicles and that mixed constitution? Yeah, there was a maxim, um, a very interesting one throughout the 16th century, that the best counsel is the dead. Um, if counselors are self-interested, as um, everyone was becoming increasingly convinced, uh, thanks to Machiavelli, then the unbiased reports of the past uh, were far more reliable, though um, commentators uh, were quick to point out that, of course, histories, too, could be the expressions of the interests of the author. But there remained this idea that, that books will um, tell the truth when counselors blanch, when when they're too afraid to, the books 
books will um, give true um, frank speech, essentially, uh, to um, a, a prince. And um, so histories were often written as political counselor, or as political counsel, sorry, which could be addressed to counselors, to the prince, or even um, to the people. Uh, the people variously thought of uh, in, in a national context, the English people, or in religious contexts, uh, for instance, the godly. And I give the example in the book of uh, Dow Rich's The French History of 1589. It's a, it's a fascinating text, um, not just because uh, it's, it's written by a woman, um, uh, but because it contains um, uh, a lot of um, examples of and commentaries on um, Machiavellian practices and, and places Machiavellian ideas in the mouth of um, a, a Medici, um, Catherine de Medici, uh, the Queen Mother of France. And it addresses itself to, uh, to the godly, essentially the, the, the Protestant multitude, um, though arguably has messages for the Queen herself as well. Uh, Dowrich wants to raise uh, the, the godly's awareness of Machiavellianism at the highest levels of, of Catholic power. And what's interesting as well is that her text was also addressed to a potential source for this godly council, um, her brother, who was a member of parliament. And it's in this context that we see parliament uh, really being put forward as an alternative source of counsel that, like the dead, could potentially be free of, of self-interest. Parliament had long been a source of, of advice and consent. That's what it was there to do. Um, but we, we see it in this context being used to prop up um, this, this sort of weakened um, monarchy. This, this, the, the, the queen gets some of her legitimacy from, uh, from parliament. Um, scholars such as McLaren have shown that uh, Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth's gender forced a sort of uh, marriage with the people and uh, the reformulation of the power of the crown as queen in parliament. So Elizabeth's legitimacy was grounded in her counsel from the godly, which many maintained could really only happen in parliament. And of course, this um, raises once again the issue of counsel and command. And Holinshed uh, demonstrates through a number of the uh, events that, that he uh, relates in, in his chronicle um, that Parliament can and ought to counsel the monarch, um, but potentially should not command the monarch. And um, this raises, I think, uh, a very difficult, uh, thorny issue for the discourse, but which is what happens if the monarch is not heeding that counsel. If the monarch's legitimacy is related to their um, receiving of godly counsel, does their legitimacy start to fall apart if they don't act on it? Um, and this is a problem in, in Elizabethan England, um, but they manage to sort of progress, continue um, despite it. Um, it, of course, becomes an issue later on, as I'm sure we'll come to. So on that note, please explore the Ciceronian unification of Utilium and Onestum within discourses of publicly interested counsel, especially in uh, Botero's uh, 1589 uh, Reason of State, 
Malavezzi's faith and specialists in contemporary affairs, as well as Robert Johnson's promotion of travel writings as fountains of political knowledge. You can also add pertinent ideas uh, by Balzac, uh, Thomas Palmer, Benjamin Fisher, and uh, Hermann Kirshner. Yeah, as, as I said, there was very quickly some criticism of the focus on histories as lacking interest. And um, writers such as Malvezzi re- turned instead to the relation of, of contemporary and largely international affairs as the proper source of political counsel. Mal- Malvezzi is, is especially interesting because he still talks about that as history. He, he, he gives sort of three tiers, three levels of, of the most truthful uh, sources of, of historical um, counsel or the most truthful histories that can exist. And he says that the one that is um, not witnessed by once by the writer, by oneself, um, but one that they are in the sort of same time as is, is the most truthful, uh, reliable form of history, which of course we wouldn't necessarily um, recognize as, as history today. That's, that's um, well, journalism or, or something else. Um, but, but he talks about it. As, as history. Um, to understand this, this shift, um, we have to look to the reason of state tradition, as you've said, um, which is uh, related to us through the work of Botero. Botero talks about reason of state as having entered the, the prince's courts of, of Europe at the time that he writes. Um, it's although we don't really see it in print before he publishes his text in 1589, he says that it's already rampant by by that point. And he's writing against reason of state. Um, he describes it, but he's he's describing it in order to counter it. Um, it's associated, he says, with um, Machiavelli and Machiavellianism, with a with a sort of dash of, of Tacitus thrown in there. But like the anti-Machiavellians we spoke of earlier, um, he ends up adopting several of its central features, even in his attempt to argue against it. So although Botero is anti-reason of state, uh, he also ends up um, not only articulating, but but, uh, adopting several of its tenets. And Botero in particular wants to bring anestum, this idea of, of moral honorableness and virtue, back into consideration of politics. But he does also accept the Machiavellian suspicion of the counselor and that reversal, that inversion of the model of counsel that we spoke about. And central to the reason of state discourse, um, both for Botero and those who write after him, is the influence of interests. Um, this this gives a vocabulary to the concerns about the counselors we've been exploring. And we've used uh, this idea of self-interest in, in these discussions, but it really only enters the discourse um, as that word, as that vocabulary with, with reason of state. Counselors um, ought to have the state's interests at the heart of their advice, not their own self-interest. And furthermore, um, very central to reason of state discourse, is that the understanding of the uh, various states' interests becomes essential to the role of the counselor, how those interests will lead um, various states to uh, a number of, of actions led by a Machiavellian weighing 
of outcomes. So it becomes very, very important for the political counselor in the reason of state tradition to understand uh, the the different states um, in the sort of international sphere and what their interests are so that they can try to predict how they're going to act in a very um, Machiavellian uh, sort of way um, to their interest, to their benefit, utile, um, is, is very prominent in this. And of course, this brings us back to, um, to Malvesi and this turn to relations of affairs as essential to the role of the counselor in this tradition. And Botero also writes um, a, a book on, on the relations of states, which becomes um, goes through several editions in the English translation, um, constantly updated uh, to get a sense of, of how these relations change. Um, there's a sense of almost um, an almanac um, that it has, has to be constantly updated um, for what's going on at the time. And so rather than moral philosophy or history, um, counselors need to understand other states' interests, which requires, importantly, travel and um, observation. As those authors um, you mentioned make clear, all of them are writing about the importance of travel, um, not to an individual's education or anything else, but but primarily travel for the good of one's one's home country. Um, one can give service to uh, the state, to the Commonwealth, through um, travel and the relation of that travel. And so, such a sort of traveler counselor. Uh, Kirshner, as related um, by Coriate states, becomes um, an optic glass through which is transmitted knowledge of these other lands and peoples. And I think we can see um, by thinking about the counselor as this optic glass, as this straightforward transmitter of, of knowledge, how far we've come from uh, that humanist counselor who was this guiding moral force, almost ruling over the prince, um, that there's a sort of reduction um, of the role of the counselor in this reason of state tradition. Can you explain Jean Baudin's correction of the Aristotelian conflation of concilium with imperium, the significance of essays on counselors and state secrets, and really important, English Civil War scholarly assessments of parliamentary councils uh, as representative prudence? Uh, you know, uh, Henry Parker's citation of emergency and crisis as justification for obligatory counsel and command, e.g. of uh, militias, is probably crucial here. Yeah, I, I mean, this is this is really the moment, I think, where the tension that we've been talking about um, explodes. So as we've seen, as we've discussed, there's a fundamental tension between counsel and command that runs through this discourse. To put it very succinctly, if counsel is not obligatory or persuasive, it does no good. What's the point of it? If it is obligatory or persuasive, then surely it's just command. And, and so either way, counsel sort of disappears. And I think that we see that in the course of, of the English Civil War. Either it disappears um, into nothingness or, <coughs> pardon me, it, it actually becomes command. And this tension between council and commands, and especially the move of, of council into command, had concerned a number of the thinkers that we've spoken about. But perhaps the most uh, explicit and influential discussion comes, I would say, in the work of Jean Baudin, 
um, which becomes central to the uh, early Stuarts' engagement with these issues in the first half of the 17th century. As uh, well, he's, he's well known, I would say, as, as the sort of foremost early modern theorist of sovereignty. Um, and so it's, it's probably no surprise that Baudin wants to suggest that council must be kept fully distinct from command or sovereignty. There must only be one source of sovereignty. Otherwise, Baudin says it's no longer sovereignty. It's no longer sovereign. So by definition, council can't become command. They have to be kept fully distinct. And the early Stuarts articulated their, this distinction in their own dealings with Parliament. Whenever the Assembly sought to impose or enforce its advice upon them, and I think the Elizabethan precedent was especially difficult for James the Sixth and First to stomach, um, just as it was difficult for Parliament to face the reduction of its influence with the arrival finally, um, after 50-some years, of an adult male monarch. The sort of um, uh, scaffolding which had held up the uh, Elizabethan uh, political structure, I think, um, became rather restrictive for someone like James VI and I, who had ruled in Scotland already as, as a full king with a very different relationship um, to his, his advisors. Um, coming to England and, and having to deal with um, the power that Parliament had been given to prop up the Elizabethan regime, I think, um, created a lot of, of, of tension. Opposing um, the uh, sort of Bodinian uh, Stuart uh, approach to the distinction between council and command, however, was a concern about private councillors. Um, the unpublic nature of their advice was uh, very strongly associated with self-interest. It was automatically held to be suspect because it was given in, in private instead of uh, the publicly given and thus assumed to be publicly oriented advice of a parliament. And this was reinforced by a genre of literature associated with the Thirty Years' War, which was adapted to the English context of the early 17th century. And this is the Secretissima Instructio literature, um, most secret instructions. Um, there were a series of letters um, purported to be advice to the Elector Palatine. And uh, it was almost satirical in its presentation of Machiavellian, but entirely believable political advice couched in reason of state language. This um, very uh, widely read um, and influential literature cast further suspicion on the figure of the counselor, who was in, in these texts suggesting every form of deception and betrayal of alliances for reasons of state. And similar texts sort of um, within that genre were produced in England, uh, for instance, by Thomas Scott. Uh, and these texts, uh, Scott's texts, argued for the power of parliament in order to counter such self-interested Machiavellian, immoral, private counsel um, that he said he associated especially with uh, the the Spanish and um, the uh, Spanish supporters in in the English court, and so um, Parliament stands against that sort of uh, pernicious influence. And so, with all of this, all of this context, and 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 everything we've been describing um, for 
uh, about 100 years in English political context, uh, it, it shouldn't surprise us that these tensions played a crucial role in the outbreak of the English Civil War. The claims of the parliamentarians to authority were couched in the vocabulary of the discourse of counsel. The most vocal defender of the authority of parliament, uh, Henry Parker, uh, as you mentioned, spoke uh, of parliament as the king's most, most faithful and least corruptible counsel and saw its superiority resting in themes we've already seen as essential to the discourse of counsel. Uh, first, its prudence, drawn from its universality and its representative nature. Second, its ability to represent not just the prudence, but also the interests of the state, unlike private counselors or privados who, not only, who only represent their own interests in their council. And third, relatedly, Parliament's lack of, of private interests because it is this uh, assembly. Furthermore, Parker also used the language of emergency associated with Kairos to overturn the distinction between council and command, advocated for by um, thinkers such as Baudin and rearticulated by the Stuarts. Parker wants to suggest that uh, the distinction between the firm distinction between council and command might be the ordinary way of things, but in the context of a king uh, seduced, as he puts it, by private counsel, the parliament must seize command directly. And that's where we get this justification of, of parliament um, taking control of, of the militia, for instance. Uh, it's in this context, again, of, of a sort of um, special or exceptional circumstance justifying things that are outside of, of the normal arrangement um, in order to, to maintain uh, political stability. And so all of this language and vocabulary and arguments that we've seen justify um, Parliament's move in the English Civil War for someone like Parker. Finally, how did Thomas Hobbes's preoccupation with temporal stability prompt him to eschew caros and prudence for an individual counselor trained in a quote-unquote civil science of politics? What were his three criteria for subjecting counsel to sovereign command? And why did he ultimately focus on sovereignty? With Hobbes, I think we get another and arguably, arguably final shift in the discourse of counsel. Um, I like to call Hobbes's Leviathan the counsel to end all counsel. Um, he essentially resolves the tension between counsel and command by accepting the consequences of that tension and prioritizing a focus on command or sovereignty over counsel. Hobbes's political system, uh, as you say, is focused on the maintenance of uh, durability, stability, and authority, which means he's not interested in concepts such as kairos, which he generally, when he does use it, associates with instability. Likewise, and I think it's difficult to overstate the importance of this, Hobbes rejects prudence as an essential feature of political knowledge. This, as we've seen, is, is a really dramatic move, and I don't think one understands how significant it is until uh, it's put in this long context of, of English political culture um, and the way in which prudence is, is seen to be essential to it. Hobbes doesn't redefine it. He doesn't try to argue for an older definition. He just says, essentially, 
it's it's unimportant or it's it's rather it's it's insufficient. He essentially equates it with guesswork in contrast to the rules of civil science. Um, so prudence can do well enough, I guess. Um, but once one understands the rules of civil science, prudence is seen to be um, a, a poor, a poor um, uh, substitute for that. Um, what you really need is is these rules of civil science, which he tries to base on um, the, the the new emerging science and essentially uh, physics and geometry. So counselors then do not need prudence. But they simply need knowledge of these rules. And Hobbes is clear that really anyone um, can can have knowledge of these rules. It's it's not um, the special purview of a particular class, for instance. Furthermore, counselors, he says, ought not to be tainted by self-interest. Um, this uh, everyone so far had essentially agreed on. Um, but in contrast to Parker and the parliamentarians, Hobbes maintains that councillors are likely to be more swayed by self-interest than in assemblies than they are individually. Um, and this largely uh, comes down to his suspicion of rhetoric. One demagogue can turn an entire assembly to his self-interest, whereas Hobbes suggests that disinterested counsel is presented devoid of rhetoric. And because of his emphasis on these, these rules of civil science, Hobbes tends to associate any rhetoric with self-interest. Um, you'll really only need rhetoric when, when you're um, putting forward your own self-interest. And so for this reason, um, he suggests uh, individuals giving advice as opposed to um, hearing them all in an assembly like parliament. And he sets out three ways in which counsel and commands can be distinguished. Um, the first is who it benefits. In other words, this issue of, of interests that we've seen so far. Um, secondly, the language uh, in which it's given. Hobbes is very interested in language. Counsel, uh, he speaks of as being in provisive language. Uh, in other words, if this, then this. Um, counsel, he says, has to have a reason or a justification for the action. And finally, third, uh, compulsion. Counsel, he says, is no law to the counseled. Um, so uh, counsel should not come with any sense of, of compulsion, obligation, uh, punishment if it's not followed, and so on. And in Leviathan, his most famous text, which is published uh, in the wake of the English Civil War, Hobbes adds uh, another element, um, exhortation, which he associates with rhetoric, uh, saying um, that it is as bad as, if not worse, than compulsion. And of necessity, the use of exhortation, um, by definition, transgresses the boundary between counsel and command. Um, and we've seen that idea developing. Um, that, that because of the power of rhetoric, to use rhetoric in giving counsel um, necessarily moves it from counsel into command. Hobbes states that very explicitly. And so for Hobbes, the English Civil War was caused in very large part because of the confusion of counsel with commands and the movement um, from one to the other, which is why he is at such pains to not only distinguish um, them from each other, but to bury counsel beneath an emphasis on commands. Hobbes seems to recognize that the tension between these two concepts 
um, and uh, has has created um, instability in the the political structure. And with Baudin, he wants to focus on sovereignty over council, removing the political power and thus the importance of council. And so um, this, I think, this moment with Hobbes really ends uh, what uh, J.J.A. Pocock called the monarchy of council. Though, of course, council is still something that we talk about today, and we absolutely should. It isn't the sort of central feature of politics as it was for this moment um, in, in what we could call the long 16th century, where almost every thinker was talking about it. It was a, um, a crucial feature of the political environment and the political structure. Um, that just isn't the same case. We, we define politics in the modern era by sovereignty. And, and I think it's this, this shift um, this this um, recognition uh, and and um, dealing with the, the tension that exists in the discourse of council that really um, cements that that change, because either way, whether you go with with Hobbes and this focus on on sovereignty um, almost to the relegation of council, um, or with Parker um, and the move from council into command. It's clear uh, that by the middle of the 17th century, the tension that we've noted had resolved itself with a focus on command, and council is pushed away into the background of the history of political thought. So what's going on with you next? You you mentioned a book previously. Can you uh, disclose anything that's happening uh, in any work that you're currently engaged with? Yeah, so I've written a, a few chapters um, for various volumes a, about these issues. Um, one has already come out, um, Freedom of Speech, 1500 to 1850, uh, with uh, Manchester University Press. Um, and another one is coming out, um, I just found out today, actually in February, um, on political advice, and that's with I.B. Torres. Um, in terms of uh, sort of next big projects, um, I am... Uh, editing two uh, critical modern editions of 16th century texts, both of which I mentioned today. Um, one is a modern edition of Anne Dowrich's The French History, that wonderful um, text uh, from 1589 uh, uh, on, on uh, the French Wars of Religion, um, which was written um, by this woman in, in the late 16th century. Uh, and the other is uh, a new uh, a critical edition of Moore's Utopia, actually, um, which is for Oxford, Oxford World Classics. And it takes as its source text not Moore's Latin text, but the uh, mid-16th century uh, edition, English translation edition, by um, someone named Ralph Robinson. Um, so I'm really looking forward to uh, working on this edition because it, it essentially has two very interesting source texts to think about, Moore's original and the choices that Robinson makes uh, in his, uh, his very different context. Uh, and then in terms of, I've got lots going on, <laughs> in terms of a, a book, um, I just finished a manuscript of a trade book, uh, a narrative history on uh, the Dudley family, um, who I first became interested in in the course of this research. Uh, precisely because of, I think, their relationship to power um, and the way in which they are constantly figured 
as as these evil Machiavels. So I wanted to research the family and see what truth <laughs> there was to this idea that they were um, raised on Machiavelli uh, by by Cribside, um, and uh, that they were sort of out to usurp the throne from the very beginning. Well, thank you for being on the show uh, today, Joanne. Thank you for having me. It's it's nice to discuss a text uh, that came out right at the start of, of lockdown. Um, so it's nice to <laughs> nice to talk to someone about it a bit. <laughs> All right. So the uh, book is Council and Command in Early Modern English Thought, published, as Joanne noted, earlier this year by Cambridge U- University Press, a segment in the Ideas and Context series. On behalf of Joanne, this is Ryan Tripp. I've been your host for New Books in History, a channel on New Books Network. Please tune in next time.